When you think of what God is really like, I said, imagine God in your mind. What, what comes to your mind? So I think we tend to think, whether we've been in church, been in the Bible, just heard some things about God, I think we tend to think of, well, now there's God in the Old Testament. And God in the Old Testament is kind of always grumpy, cranky, uh, he's way too easily triggered. Um, he's just waiting to get folks. He's this warmongering God who just is kind of irritated and annoyed. And every now and then I just need to take some people out. And then we also think if we've, again, whether we've been around church or we kind of have heard some things, we tend to think Jesus we say, oh, I know he's supposed to be God's son, but I think Jesus is God's son who went off to college and he let his hair grow long and he became liberal and soft and he became all about love and peace. And so he's way different than his dad, way cooler, way easier to be around because he is, is that. But what is the true picture is that the true picture? The Old Testament, angry, easily triggered God, or Jesus in long hair, flowing robes? Yes, they probably all wore robes. So you got that part right, maybe. Um, is that a true picture of what God's really like? Now, that's a question that um, a couple of weeks back, we semi-ended a series uh, where we were exploring that question. What is God really like? What's he really, really like? Because deep down, we want to know. We want to know if he's just waiting to get us. We want to know if he is holding grudges. We want to know if perhaps he's grandpa in his cardigan can't wait to give out cash to the kids at Christmas. Don't expect that, kids, by the way. But what, what is he really, really like? And in that series, we um, went to the place where God says to Moses, who asked, he says, and, and Moses probably knew God as well or better than anybody on the planet at the time. And he says, Lord, I, I want to know you more. And he says, show me your glory. And God says, okay, well, I can't show you myself because you'll die. No one can see God and live, but I'll pass by you and I'll kind of cover you up so you don't get incinerated. Uh, what's the word? Incinerated. There we go. See, you're awake. Incinerated in the moment. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, in that series is where um, Moses asks it, and God says, here's who I am. And he passes by. And in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he says, the Lord, the Lord God is warmongering, always angry, hard to please, and you better watch out. No. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And I won't finish it. So he says, that's who I am at my core. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. 
Well, today is what God, what is God really like, the Christmas edition. Whether you were here with us during that series or not won't matter because what we see is after he answered that with Moses, all throughout the Old Testament, God kept revealing his character in the same consistent way. And his people would pray to him saying, I know I'm in a bad way and I partially put myself or I fully put or we fully put ourselves here because of our sin. But we cry out to you because you're compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. That's how they did. And each week in the series, we would skip a rock then to Jesus, that Jesus is who God is in the flesh. Today is the Christmas edition of what is God really like. And we're going to see it in John 1, if you want to turn to John 1. Because Exodus 34, 6, and 7 was God's self-disclosure of himself. The first time he put in words, this is who I am. He'd been showing who he is, but this is who I am at, it, at my core But this, in John 1, is God's ultimate self-disclosure. He says, now it's going to be show and tell in the person of my son, Jesus. And John, uh, in John 1, 1 to 18, is where we'll be today. He's going to give us, he's going to say, Jesus really came for two reasons. To reveal, again, to show you what God is really like, and to redeem. And in this passage, and really his whole gospel, He tells us why Jesus and only Jesus is uniquely qualified to do those two things, to reveal God and to redeem us as sinners. And he can do so because he's the word of God in the flesh. Now, if you're there, John 1, 1 to 18, they're going to be on the screen as well. uh, If you don't have a copy of God's word, but follow along silently while I read Allow John 1, 1 to 18. In the beginning, that sounds familiar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw or we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, meaning John the Baptist, about him and cried out saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father He has explained him. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, this is John's gospel. There are four gospels. I'm not going to um, go through why we have four, but they're just four unique um, accounts from four different authors to four different audiences, and they have different purpi is the Latin plural. They, have, they write for different reasons. Why does John write his gospel? And John is particularly different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they're called the, they're called the synoptics, which means to see the same or to see together. They seem to see Jesus in one way, but John, he still sees him in those ways, but he wants to say, here's who he uniquely is, and here's why I put my account the way I did. And particularly, you need to know John is writing uh, much later than those other three. And he's writing uh, what we might call a more worldwide gospel. He wants everyone to know, Jew and Greek alike. And he, wants, he writes for a specific reason. On this slide here, why did he write his gospel? He tells you and me. John 20, 30 to 31. He says, therefore, many other signs, and he's speaking about miraculous things Jesus did that point to something about who he is. That's what a sign is. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He goes, I left them out on purpose because I didn't need that. I need, I wanted these seven, really. They're not written in this book, but these have been written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. John tells you explicitly, I've arranged my gospel. I put these seven signs kind of as mile markers, um, as signs pointing to there's something about this one who can do these things like turning water to wine, like healing others, like raising Lazarus from the dead. I want you to see these things so that you might go, who in the world is this? And who has the authority and power to do this? And why in the world would he have the credibility to say some of the I am statements that are in John's gospel that he does? He says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the light. And John in his gospel, it says, I've laid it out this way so that you might see why Jesus is only Jesus is uniquely qualified to reveal the Father and to redeem all those who would believe in his, in his name, which means believe in his character. What is God really like? He says, I'm going to show you in living color through the life of the one who's the word become flesh. And in believing in him and who he is, we can have life in his name. John's gospel confronts you and me with what it looks like when the sovereign Lord moves in down the street. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. The one in whom eternity resides took up residence right next door to his fellow Jews. He took up residence in our world. And John's entire gospel demonstrates something about Jesus and it demands something of you and me in response. His incarnation, that's a fancy word, um, you know this from going to Mexican restaurants. You're like, I want the carne asada. You're wanting the flesh of a certain animal that tastes a certain way with certain spices. Carne is flesh. The incarnation, Jesus' incarnation, gives us a chance to see this is what God is really like. God in the flesh. Why? So that we might behold. That means see and perceive, take in. 
Behold and believe and experience life in his name. So he came for two reasons. John's prologue, which is what we read, John 1, 1 to 18. This is prologue. He's kinda, it's kind of like if you, uh, many of you are very cultured and go to see symphony orchestras all the time. They might play an overture at the beginning. Kind of like, hey, I'm going to give you a little preview, a little snapshot, a little taste, a little something to get this in your mind, in your heart, kind of resonating through your bones, and it's going to come back up again. That's what John 1, 1 to 18 is, where he's going to show us that Jesus came to reveal the Father and to redeem sinful man. And John will tell us why in this, these verses, why Jesus is uniquely qualified to do so because he's word of God, the word of God in the flesh. First of all, in John 1, 1 to 5, um, there's a, a beginning of creation that we, I said, does this sound familiar? In the beginning, verse 1 here, in the beginning, goes back to Genesis 1, 1. There's echoes of that, of creation. And now John uses that to say, just like that was a seismic, you know, universal event, he goes, now, because the word has become flesh, now there is the opportunity for new creation for us who come to know and believe in him. So he starts with, in the beginning was the word. And so he's going to give us um, some, some qualifications. Here's why Jesus is qualified to reveal the Father, to tell us what God is really like, and to redeem us. Because before a beginning, the word. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is all of you in your Greek text, as you're looking at it, um, it says NRK, which means in beginning. And there's some people who might knock on your door or might want to have conversations with you of another faith, which is not our faith, which is not line up with our faith. And they will try to tell you, and they'll go to John 1, that, well, see, if you, if you understood this, there actually is no definite article in the beginning was the word, like, and was like, uh, in fact, this happened to me. I was getting my hair cut years ago in Grapevine, and the woman, I think she was newly indoctrinated in a different faith, and somehow we got on the subject. I can't remember what it was, uh, how we got on the subject, but we got to. Well, if you, if you knew this, that, I mean, Jesus wasn't really God. He was like, a God, or he was kind of like God-like, and she kind of go down that road. She goes, you know, because if you knew Greek, it was in the original, there's no the. I was like, oh, that's fascinating. I have a Greek Bible in my car. Now, I wasn't being a jerk. It came out well, but she did have scissors at my head. <laughs> Here's what I want you to know. When there's a beginning that is so immense it is not only understood, it's more pronounced if you don't have the article. Like, we don't need to specify, like, it is beginning. But really, what John is saying, the beginning that we think of, the beginning of creation, before that, when there wasn't a beginning, that's what he's saying. And so here's why Jesus is qualified, John tells us. I'm going to kind of go through these pretty quickly. It's because he's the eternal pre-incarnate, pre-flesh word. In the beginning was the Word. So he's pre-existent. Before there was a beginning, he was existing is literally what it says. And he is the Word, the Logos, or Logos, if you want to say it that way. 
Now, this concept is not just thrown out by John. When he says, in the beginning was the logos or logos, he's actually appealing to both Jews and to Greeks. To Jews who understood that, uh, uh, of God that he is the God, the creator God. And that the way he created was by his very speaking creation into existence. Out of nothing, God created. God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's power. And so the Jews understood that it's by the very word of God that he, he created. But also they even referred to him sometimes as the word of God. There's a, uh, uh, one of the times with Moses, and it says that he was going to go meet Um, with God, but literally in the Hebrew, it was he was going to go meet with the word of God. And so for a Jew, when you say the logos, they think creator God who created with with beautiful design and, and purpose and reason and order. The Greeks, the Greek philosophers, they saw the logos and they used this a lot, this term, and they talked about it a lot. Um, as the, this impersonal power that puts sense in the world, making order, making the worldly order um, instead of chaos. And they saw the logos as this ultimate principle and reason that designed and governs all things. In other words, the Greek philosophers, while they're sitting around in their robes, you know, at the, at the place where they'd sit around and talk for hours and hours, thing that all of you would love to do, Pontificate. They'd look up and they'd, it, it was not only an assumption, it was a curiosity and a, an exploration, but, but it was held as a given thing that there's this logos, there's this force that put things together. So John purposefully says, I'm going to talk to all of you from all backgrounds. All of you have some sense that the world makes some sense, so it makes a lot of non- nonsense at times, that there's a person or a God, the Jews, or there's this force or power. And John wants to say, I want, you to tell, I want to now tell you who that Logos is. That he is the word of God in the flesh. He existed before there was a beginning. Secondly, and the word was with God. This shows us that the son is distinct from the father. So when we say we believe in a triune God, we believe in God the father, God the son, God the spirit. I don't know if for some of you, that's like, oh my goodness, I can't put that, I can't fully understand that. None of us can. But what we can say, though grasping with what we've been told and revealed by God, we can say that God is one essence in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And, and John is very particular to say, now then the beginning was this word, this creator, this orderer, And that word was with God. And then lastly, not only is he um, with him, with God, but he is God. The word was God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with him. He's trying to say, this word that you've been looking at for Greeks, it's not just a force. He's a person. And he's a person who exists in community with God. And he himself is God. And so he is, uh, before um, becoming flesh, he's the eternal preexistent deity. That's who he is. Well, then in 3 through 5, 
He says that this one word is the uncreated word, and yet he's the one who created the world. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now, there are some who would also knock on your door or have a conversation with you and say, well, he, Jesus is created. Or, and they'll say he's not God, or he, you know, they'll, they'll kind of give you lots of different varieties, but they'll say he's created. John is shooting that out of the water. Because he's saying this word who was in the beginning, was with God, and, and was being God, he always has existed as God, he's the one who put everything that has ever been made, he's the one who created it. So to say that he's created, would say that he created himself, and it just blows up. He says, no, he is the creator. In fact, this fact of creation is affirmed by Paul in Colossians 1.16, and also the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews 1.2. Let's read those really quick. Colossians 1.16, well, we're going to be starting a series in Colossians uh, end of January. For by him all things are created. This is speaking of Jesus. By him all things are created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And Hebrews 1, 2. And Hebrews and Colossians are both about the supremacy of Christ above all things. That's their main heading. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. According to Psalm 19, 1. Many of us pray, 19, 14. Uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. But... This is after he waxes eloquent about God's creation, speaking of God's glory. He says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands, that he is creator, and they tell us of his glory. Then Romans 1.20, Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, or we, or without excuse. Although limited in scope, creation as a revelation from God. In other words, we can see trees, mountains, we go, there's some order, there's some God. Creation as a revelation is a word from God about himself, but it was limited, so God needed a stronger, fuller, more intense, final revelation of himself. So he sent the strongest message he could send. And that's what John is telling us. He sent his son Jesus God in the flesh. Why? Verses 4 and 5, to bring life and light. In him was life. Not, and he created life. Life has always existed and it exists in him. He never needs life support. He never needed creating, like being brought to life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Often in scripture, light speaks of revelation, speaks of truth. And what does that light do? It shines in the darkness, speaking as it enters in the world, shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And I want to pause there for a second. Some of your translations say, uh, and the darkness did not um, overtake the light, or did not overcome the light, or did not understand the light, or did not take hold of. All of these are good translations, and I believe John... In, is intentionally uh, ambiguous here. He's doing um, the fancy way of saying it is he's doing a double entendre, at least double, meaning two meanings. I'm going to use all the meanings. The light shines, and some don't understand it. 
the light shines like of who he is and some say I'm not going to take hold of that and also the light shines and some oppose it and say this is ridiculous and yet in the end that the darkness won't win the rejection of the light will not bring you life in fact the two greatest fears that we have besides some of you it's public speaking are death and darkness um, I don't know how we got on the subject the other day, but we were talking about um, in prison. I think it was somebody who was in prison, like, oh, man, that guy in prison is going to really get it from the other prisoners. And, you know, the question was like, well, would you rather be in solitary confinement? I was like, no, I would take the beatings all day long because to be in the darkness and maybe be slid a tray underneath and you feel around, I would just lose it. And that's really how God created us. He created us for life in him and the light that he provides. And John says, this is what the word of God has brought. And the darkness, whether it fights back or not, resist, will not win. Now John transitions from the pre-incarnate word to the word entering humanity in his incarnation. How will Jesus, or how will the word enter? And what will be the response? We're not going to look at the verses about John. John, we know, is the forerunner. He says, I'm going to introduce you to this one. And in verse 9, um, that the true light came into the world, uh, and so he came uh, to enlighten everyone. He came not to be cryptic, though sometimes he didn't give you the full picture, but he did come to reveal the Father in his character, in his words, um, and to, to, to speak the truth, but particularly to live that truth that he spoke. And so, he came as that true light, which we all need if we're going to be enlightened. Don't think enlightenment. Just being brought to understanding, perceiving, and receiving that which is light and life for us. Well, what were the responses? There's three responses. On Christmas Eve, we're going to talk more about this, but I'm just going to give them to you really quickly. In the text, the first is that they did not recognize him. Um, or some, some of our translations say they did not know him. It's the idea of like, hey, you, I know you. It's, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. So he created him. And then, strangely, the very ones that were created by him, like, I don't recognize him. Or I can't put the pieces together. His very disciples couldn't do this. We, his very disciples, often can't put the pieces together. But particularly as he came in his first advent, people who watched him walking, was God with skin on, walking down the streets, bending low to talk to them. They did not recognize him. The second response is he came to his own, verse 11, but his own did not receive him. They rejected him. Uh, and this is perhaps the majority. We see this in all the Gospels, that through its leadership, Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They said, we refuse. Even when Pilate's like, oh, well, I put on the thing, you know, the king of Jesus. And they're like, no, no, change that. And he's like, I've written what I've written. They didn't want that. They were, we reject that. He says he came to his own. He gave them a chance. He came and dwelt with them. But they did not receive him. They rejected him. There was a willful rejection of him. And then verse 12, and this is the gospel. This is good news. But, though some don't recognize, and 
though many reject some, received him then, and some receive him now. But some, or excuse me, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. How do we receive him? We believe in his name. We, we put the weight of our lives on him, knowing that on our own, we have no standing with God. But because of his grace, mercy, and later in John's gospel, he can say it is finished because Jesus, taking our place, could then be the one in whom we place our trust and faith. And in him, then, we can know forgiveness and eternal life. And so he says, we have the right to be called children of God. We have, some of you say, the power. It just means the authority, like it's verified. You are legit. But he made you legit, not your figuring things out. He gave us the faith. He gave us the grace to understand so that we might receive the gift. So reject him or receive him is the question. How can any person have this kind of authority? Jesus has that kind of authority to say, reject me or receive me. And that determines your destiny. That determines your life now, and that determines your life forever. How can he have that kind of authority? Well, because he, he's not just any person. He's the unique son of God who has eternally existed. There never was a time when he was not. Never. He's eternally been God the Son. Unto us a child is born. A child was born in space and time. But unto us a son is given. The son who already existed is given. And so he's qualified because he's eternally existed. And there was a time, excuse me, there never was a time when he was not. Yet there was this time that we celebrate during this time of year in history when that sovereign son took on humanity becoming the sovereign lord with skin on him and that sovereign god with skin on him moved in down the street verse 14 and there you see the exodus passage i, I highlighted because really john 1 and 14 that last phrase full of grace and truth you want to know what god is like he's full of grace and truth that's really one way in which john kind of paraphrases all that God had said about himself. But he doesn't just paraphrase it. He embodies it. And the word, that word that has existed from all time, that created, that is very God, also became very man. The word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we saw or beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten or the unique one and only son from the father full of grace and truth. The word of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. He moved into the neighborhood. Fully God, fully man. He is the God-man Jesus, whom Jesus says dwelt, excuse me, John says dwelt among us. Literally, the word is he tabernacled among his people. That means to put up your tent. So just like in the Old Testament, and this John's very artfully doing this, how did God let the people sense and know his presence as closely as he could? He set up a tent and he says, I'm going to be there and my glory veiled a bit, but evident. And then Moses will come speak to me. 
but it's also so overwhelming when Moses leaves that he'll just be glowing. So eventually he has to wear a veil just so it helps you guys out. But God dwelled with his people then. But then that tabernacle becoming a temple and God dwelt there and then the temple's destroyed. But now he has showed up to tabernacle amongst people to be fully dwelling and literally tabernacling. And so that's why we sing of this incarnate one. We sing of him at Christmas. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Well, why did Jesus take on flesh and dwell among us? To reveal the Father, to show and tell what God is like, that we could behold and believe. And he can do this because he's that one and only from the Father. Hebrews 1.3 lets us know, not only John says we beheld his glory, we saw his glory. Well, that glory in Jesus is the radiance of his personhood, the radiance of God's perfect character, the radiance of his perfect love that the tailors led us in thinking about, the radiance of perfect peace, the, the radiance of joy that is inexhaustible. Hebrews author says, and he is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. If you look at me, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and the Father and I are one. Tim Keller, I'll probably share another quote from him on Christmas Eve. Uh, he passed this year. Boy, we, are, we have a hole, if you will. Um, he is a man who thought deeply and yet could express things for simpletons like me. But he says this, I love it. In his incarnation, God has punched a hole in the roof of the world and has climbed in. You want to know what God is really like? He's not quickly angered. He's not capricious and flies off at the handle. He's not perpetually disappointed in you. He hurts with you. He, he doesn't excuse sin, and yet he's willing to move into the mess of our lives and say, I'm here. And like the woman was caught in adultery, says, now go and sin no more. But he says, I'm here. If they don't, that, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation with me. I forgive you. Now move forward. That's who God is. And we see that in Jesus. Who is that one? When the hole was punched, he climbed in. What does his incarnation reveal to us about the Father? It reveals his glory, the perfect display of his grace and truth. In verses 15 to 17, we see that those are held in perfect tension. John says, here's the one who surpasses me. And then he talks about Moses, and he says, Jesus surpasses Moses who gave the law, but grace and truth have been fully realized in Jesus. The law could only point to the need for a Savior for us, because none of us can keep it. But Jesus could fulfill that law perfectly, so all who believe in him could know life in his name. And how is it we can really know what God is really like? Verse 18, literally, Jesus has ex exegeted the Father. That's literally what it says. Exegete means to draw out of, meaning I didn't make something up. It's there, and I'm drawing it out, and I'm explaining it. I'm showing it. I'm telling it. And that's what Jesus has done. No one has seen God any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Because he's the unique son of God, eternally preexisting with the Father, not created, but creator. 
He's God in the flesh. Therefore, Jesus can later say in his gospel, again, if you've seen me, you've seen what God is really like. You've seen the Father. And in John 6, 40, the challenge, the invite in all of John's gospel. I'm going to say this on Christmas Eve again. Bring your friends who don't know Jesus, please. Bring your family members who don't know Jesus, please. Because I want them to hear this. The essence of the Christian message is not behave, but behold and believe. Why do I say that? Because John says it. For this is the will of my Father. What does God really want for you and me? That everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. When you get raised up on the last day, that means you don't have to fear darkness nor death. Because life and light are yours in Jesus and Jesus alone. But we have to behold him as he really is and believe in him. And as a believer, continue to behold him and continue to believe. I put in the, the candle of love thing, we believe, help our unbelief. You know why? Because I pray that multiple times every day. I believe, Lord, but I got a long way to go. Please help my unbelief. So that's, that's what we walk away with today. Two things, to behold him, and yes, believe him, believe him. But also then be like him. Because if he is the perfect embodiment of the character of God, and we are as Christians little Christ, then how is it that my neighbor, my family member, how do they see who God, what God is really like through me? And it's never going to be perfect. But we are to grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, who in whom dwells all the fullness of deity. Jesus himself. So we are to behold him. Um, Hark the herald angels sing. We'll sing this on Christmas Eve. But don't miss these lines that you may never have thought about. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. That baby in a manger doesn't mean squat if John 1 isn't true. And you can put it right next to your frosty and Rudolph and Griswold decorations because it'll have the same weight. But if he did come, who is he? Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. How can you this week do that? I I love it. Michael said it. When you behold something, you attend to it. You don't do it quickly. I want to encourage you. I, I'm, I love, I'm Mr. Fezziwig, and I love Christmas, and I love giving, and all that. I, I go crazy. I probably put us behind in January financially, but um, no, not, not really too bad. Um, <laughs> but behold him. Meditate on Jesus' uniqueness as God incarnate, the sovereign with skin on, who's uniquely qualified to reveal the Father to you and to me and to redeem sinners. Because he's undiminished deity and perfect humanity. I just want to encourage you, find a time this week, carve out a time this week to draw near to him. As John says, he drew near to dwell with us. Schedule a time. If you don't schedule it, it won't happen. Schedule a time to savor him. I'll give you two possible ways of doing that. One is you could memorize John 1, 1 to 18. I know that sounds like, what? Maybe you just memorize one, one, and two. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with Him. Or John 1, 14, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. Okay, I'm not going to keep going. You could do that, but what I would encourage you to do is we have a, a, a Bible reading plan that ends this week, and these are the last four things. We just finished Ecclesiastes. You can get this on our website, or you can take a picture of this right now. Look how short the passages are. Isaiah 9 talks about the light coming in the darkness. Isaiah 52 and 53 talks about the suffering servant. Isaiah 61 talks about that he um, replaced gloom with gladness. Matthew 1 is the story of him talking with um, Joseph and Mary about this one who would be Emmanuel. And then Micah 5 is how did he end up in Bethlehem? Not an accident. Just spend some time each day. These are very simple, a few minutes, maybe a prayer from it. And I, I generally have Christmas music, particularly Hark the Herald Angels Sing, or Handel's Messiah, if you can handle it. The most beautiful piece of music ever written. Why? Because I don't want to skim through this season. And I don't want that for you either. Because I want the joy that comes from beholding him. I want the melting away of all the junk when you decide, I just want to behold you. And then be like him, simply there, pleased as man, as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, he's the ultimate neighbor. He was pleased to be next door to his creation, didn't recognize him or rejected him. How can we be pleased as man with men to dwell, our fellow neighbors? How can you embody grace and truth, caring, thoughtfulness. That could be simply doing something for them as they're leaving town. Some of them could be those that you have prayed for and thought, maybe I'll invite them sometime and invite them to Christmas Eve. Um, Christmas Eve service isn't the hope of the world, but it could be an opportunity for you to bring, invite somebody to join you. And if God turns lights on or God gives a conversation at a next coffee with them, praise the Lord. But we can only be like him once we beheld him and believe in him who is the one that when he was put up on the cross, it's behold, behold the man, the man who is the God man who gave his life for you and for me. I'm gonna invite the worship team up. We're gonna to sing to, to close. I'm gonna pray while they are getting ready and then I'll come up and uh, say one more thing and close. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are often like ducks. On the surface, everything's calm, but underneath we are just flapping those little feet. And mentally, we can be that way, and especially this time of year. I pray that we don't waste time feeling guilty about that. We, we enter into the fun and the boisterousness and the activity, but, Lord, we do so perhaps after first spending time with you to behold you, to be reminded that it's not just empty decorations, but, Lord, that there's a substance there's a person who 
pre-existed, who was with you, but who also is God, became flesh, and in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, but also in whom is life and light. I pray for anyone here who has not known your life or light in their own experience, their own story. Pray you might open their eyes. And as we sing, Lord, may we sing from grateful hearts. May we attend to you even in these last few minutes. And Lord, put on our hearts somebody or several somebodies that we can engage with. Perhaps just being at the ready for you to use, to care for them, to communicate grace, maybe to invite them to Christmas Eve, but simply to embody the one who embodied you perfectly. To give you praise and thanks. Receive it now from us in song in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Would you stand? Let's sing. And...